0: Bagawai to, I'd to some some more to, more Aparuta De Sangamatasatawara Ye Sodavanta Bam Shantu Satang So this is the um, New Year's Eve, as you all aware. And uh, the last remaining hours of two thousand six going into 2007 at midnight, so it's already 2007 in Thailand, <laughs> and so it's a time to reflect and oftentimes make determinations or whatever for the, for the new year. New Year's resolutions as they say, Um, these are are Western customs, but uh, these are opportunities we have in in, uh, our human lifetime to uh, reflect, to contemplate the Meaning of life, the purpose of existence, uh, to uh, contemplate our own, you know, our own life and how we relate to the uh, society we live in, the planet that we live upon. <clears throat> and so life can be just merely a perfunctory kind of aqu- acquisition of habits and just kind of rolling along with the force of habit till you die, <clears throat> which seems to be what many people do with their lives, uh, without learning that much from them. Uh, because, it, you know, this, this realm that we're experiencing now, the, the human realm, the sense realm, planetary life, the sun and moon and so forth that affects us, all the conditions that... that allow us to breathe or to survive in various ways. We can recognize the total dependency uh, of this universal system that we're very much uh, affected by. Uh, this ability to reflect on it is what the Buddha was pointing to. If we were merely just conditioned creatures, just programmed at the beginning and and meant to just operate in the terms of procreation and survival uh, then we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to reflect or contemplate that what is the meaning of life and there's a independent uh, uh, published uh, a magazine section called Where is God and uh, this was a couple of weeks ago and this of course I was mentioned in this this terrible photo of me (laughs) and they had (laughs) Uh, they had uh, they had you know very important uh, uh, representatives of the major religions so I guess that's quite a quite an honor to be considered in that level with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the the Cardinal O'Connor and whatnot the chief rabbi, and so forth. <clears throat> but this is, uh, this is what, you know, what, what we're experiencing, religion, what is the purpose of religion? I mean, many people have asked me over the past, uh, over this past year about, you know, religion seems to cause more problems than solve them, and we can see there's so many, uh, you know, religious conflicts. In Northern Ireland, between the Protestants and the Catholics, and, and then in Israel-Palestine, between the Israelis and the Palestinians, but that's not, you know, there's different religious attitudes, identities, between in Islam itself, between the Sunnis and Shiites, and then, uh, and we can always name various conflicts we have. When I was I was brought up as a Anglican in the United States we're called Episcopalians and uh, we always considered ourselves uh you know, we kind of looked down on the other uh Christian groups. And they get this kind of snobbish Episcopalian perception that somehow we're we're a step above the rest. And that seems to be very much, you know, the human the human thinking, uh the the clinging, the identity with the conventions that we that we are affected by, so if we're born into a Jewish family, then that then we get that perception, or a Muslim family, or whatever we we are identified or programmed, conditioned by those perceptions. <clears throat> Most of us here in Buddhist uh, is a, for many of us. Uh, I've chosen, you know, in our adult life we've chosen Buddhism. It wasn't part of a cultural programming. Uh, It was a a deliberate choice, at least uh, speaking for myself. I I definitely chose Buddhism. Uh, I had no knowledge of it, you know, parents were not, didn't have the slightest clue of what Buddhism was about. But in terms of my own, what, what reached me, what uh, affected me, what moved me was uh, the teachings of the Buddha. So I was about 21 years old, so that was uh, over 50 years ago that, uh, that I uh, uh, first encountered Buddhism, and, and some, and I can't explain at that time, you know, what it was that that uh, moved me so much because it wasn't particularly from the intellect at all, it was uh, coming from the the heart level or the intuitive sense, something beyond just the the intellectual conditioning which was very much uh, an intellect that was programmed and and developed through identity as being Christian and with the uh, American values and mores and attitudes, modern science, and the thing that really moved me was the the kind of uh, attitude that I this is through through what what was then in the in 1955, uh, you know the uh, the kind of uh, Introduction of Zen Buddhism into the American uh, country. there's this uh, from Japan from the Japanese uh, Americans were still occupying Japan at the time and so this was one of the uh, gifts that the Japanese gave to the Americans was uh, this uh, Zen Buddhism. Now, we ask ourselves, what is the meaning of life? Or where is God? Or what is God? Or is there a God? Or what's the purpose? We, You know, these are thoughts that we have because we find ourselves living in these human bodies and we don't really know what we're doing or understand it very well. It's all rather mysterious. And so we we feel we need to be told by authority. We look to authority to uh, say th- those above us are older than we are or priesthoods or or scholars, um, you know, that that we, we can, when we're young, we tend to seek information and knowledge from teachers and parents and and people who we look to as those that have some wisdom, or some authority, or knowledge of the world. But there's also, uh, in this human consciousness, this uh, questioning ability. We, uh, why? What is the meaning? What is the purpose? What is God? Is there a God? What What is beyond death? What happens when 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 I die, what happens when somebody dies? And so these are the the questions that you know we sometimes seek answers for from from uh, priests or monks or rabbis or or people in the know, authority figures. But inevitably, none of the answers can really satisfy us because. You know they we can come up with all kinds of intelligent answers to such questions, uh, or you know we can we can just say, "Well, you just have to trust or believe or don't doubt." I was told that doubting was the work of the devil, that you just had to completely commit yourself to the Christian belief and uh, not doubt it. <coughs> so this was an impossibility. For me to, to you know just couldn't do it because this questioning nature seemed to be very strong, you know, and i couldn't didn't have the trust or the faith in the authority figures that I experienced in my life up till then that that I could actually take their word for it and just go along with with what they tell me so the encounter with Zen Buddhism was at least the opportunity to question and investigate, look into what is the meaning of life, not to come up with you know, what did the Buddha say and what does the Dalai Lama say and uh, what is the, the great teachers, the meditation masters, you know, they have all the answers, even though on a condition level I could definitely, you know, want answers from those outside me. Because on a personal level, I felt inadequate, Uh, I felt, I was confused and and bewildered by life, and I was looking for answers to questions from those who I uh, assumed would, would know the answers. But as you get to a certain age, you realize even the authorities really, you know, they can't answer these questions. But within the human psyche is this uh, longing, a kind of aspiration or longing, a movement to want to understand our lives. And, of course, I had the, uh, the First half of this month I had the opportunity to go to Egypt uh, for two weeks, and I was going to to this ancient uh, country. You know, when you're in Egypt, you kind of realize uh, how old. You know, for for us, uh, we think of the Buddhism as being an ancient religion. That was only 500 B.C., and you get into Egypt, and it's like 3,000 B.C. They built these temples and these pyramids and tombs and develop this rather elegant culture uh, and beautiful architecture and aesthetics and philosophies and whatnot all around the subject of death and God or gods or the meaning of life or uh, the uh, uh, seemingly kind of uh, incredible obsession around death. These pyramids were tombs to bury the pharaohs in. So from the, you know, from the ancient time up to the present, now we can, you know, the trouble with modern society is that we can distract ourselves with trivia. We can spend a life, a fairly comfortable life in countries like this, just uh, just dealing, you know, with distractions and trivialities and gossip and news and and uh, modern technology and and uh, seeking luxuries and comforts and romance, adventure, excitement in various ways that that uh, take us into kind of uh, hopeful experiences of happiness or something that's interesting or fascinating to us. Now, the, the what I realized in in the, one of the uh, up, you know one of the profound realizations within the Buddhist tradition was this investigation of this very movement of the mind. It wasn't just to to join some exotic uh, Asian religion and uh, you know uh, light incense sticks and. Develop kind of uh, chanting ceremonies and 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 more kind of fascinating, interesting philosophical angles, uh, seeking something you know within because it's it seemed more kind of exotic and and uh, y- you know more fascinating, even more romantic in a way than than the old kind of Episcopalian style of middle class America. But it wasn't due to the exoticism or that of the of Buddhism, but something you know that was really moved that moved me intuitively. Now, when I use this word intuitive, uh, these are terminologies, just pointing to uh, the ability of any any human individual to uh, something you know beyond just the thoughts, the the views, the conditioned conditioning of of our minds. There's something outside that, that can that can reflect, that can wonder, can that can contemplate. Now we've, you know, in Western civilization we've developed reason and logic to a high level. Western science, empirical science as it's developed in in Europe and North America and so forth. There's, there's uh, this development of the rationale, the ability to think uh, in logical ways, things that make sense and answer questions and solve problems. <clears throat> but this is also very limited because no matter how intelligent and rational your life may be or how well educated you are, that is, uh, this is not liberating. One is still bound to the conditioning. Of thought itself, because thought, thinking, is conditioned. It's uh, you know, we're, when we're born, we don't think, we don't have a language, uh, we we aren't thinking. I am a little uh, American boy, uh, and I'm I'm an Episcopalian. That was I <laughs> acquired that uh later on, you know, when I was told by my parents, you're a little boy and you're a middle class little white boy and you're Episcopalian. <laughs> and so then, then we believe in God, you're baptized, confirmed, and uh, good little boys are like this and bad little boys are like that. So you get the messages of, of how to behave, what is acceptable, what is considered right behavior, allowable behavior within your family and the the society and how when you misbehave then of course you're punished, you know, you're told off, you're spanked or whatever, uh, you know, ways of letting them know that that's not, we're not going to accept that kind of behavior, that kind of language. So this is conditioning, isn't it? The reward-punishment <coughs> experience that we've all been through is part of our cultural conditioning is uh, rewarded for being good and punished for being bad. And so good and bad, you know, these are these are words again and, and what is good is defined and and what is bad is defined, what is right, what is wrong. and And yet these are words, these are concepts that we, that we are conditioned. We are told, we, we acquire them after birth. It's not something you're born with. Now, when we're born, we are born as uh, we have a body and, uh, and we're conscious. So these are what we say natural conditions. These are, these, you don't create, human beings don't create human bodies. And, uh, uh, you know, as persons, we, we have the function of procreation as part of the human karma, but we don't, we can't make, uh, make a, a human body and consciousness. These are, these are what we call nature, or natural, or in uh, Buddhist terms, the Dhamma, or the, the way things are and so then then after we're born we we live we experience consciousness within the human form the human body that we have and then we're we're conditioned to think and believe and and regard form views about right and wrong good and bad and about ourselves you know how good or bad we are or how lovable or unlovable or Beautiful or ugly, or uh, acceptable or unacceptable. So this is this is the you know like cultural conditioning. It's all about reward and punishment. You can see it in every religion. You know the the stoning of adult of uh, for women who commit adultery. <laughs> it's in the Bible. You know or in. Uh, the Sharia law, or whatever, where they, you know, if a woman commits adultery, then then it's right to stone her. And yet, stone her to death, and yet, you know, in our terms, this would be not right. But the conditioning process is like that, isn't it? You, If you never question, if you don't get behind the conditions, then one merely is, uh, you've just become the conditions. You think and and live and and believe and act according to uh, what is expected, what is rewarded, what is... and avoid that which uh, you fear is going to... you're going to be punished. So in the conditioned realm, when we... I use this word, conditioned, and the the Buddha emphasizes this, uh, conditioned phenomena, conditions, or phenomena, or existence, these words English words all convey uh, forms that uh, are born and and then uh, uh, reach their peak and then cease, birth and death. So all the conditions around us, what we see, hear, what we hear, smell, taste, touch, think, emotional feelings of Love and hate, like and dislike, uh, elation and depression and so on. These are conditions because they all have a beginning and end. Just like this is the end of 2006. There isn't much left of it. And the beginning in a couple of hours of 2007. Now this is a convention. This is not, these are just agreed conventions that we have. You know, in the Buddhist year, it's it's it's, it's, it's a, you know, if you go by the Buddhist year, it's a, it's uh, two thousand five hundred and fifty, isn't it? Two thousand five hundred fifty, <clears throat> and so in Buddhist countries, they you know, they can't even agree on that because Sri Lanka is one year ahead of Thailand. But at least when you're in Sri Lanka, you go by what they say, and then you're in Thailand, you, you go along with what they tell you. Just because it's an agreed convention. It doesn't have to be proven as ultimately true, or which is the best or the, you know, the, the correct one. It's just regarded as just a, a convention to use regarding time, the planet's revolution around the Sun and 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 the way that we in, in our own society, our own culture, we we go by what they call the Christian era. So after Christ, A.D., uh, then we've we've got. Uh, so this is two thousand, nearly two thousand and seven. I said before, in Thailand, it's already two thousand and seven. If they if they're using Christian conventions. <clears throat> but now the world tends to go along with that. That seems to be what generally, you know, people regard as the way of dating things. is is uh, is that uh, particular Christian form. It doesn't mean you're Christian. It just means a, a conventional agreement. We agree to use that to make things easy. Because if everybody forms their own. On way of dating everything, it would be terribly confusing. <clears throat> so conventions can be used to simplify, <laughs> to make agreements, uh, as, as, as in human societies, on on that on, you know on time and place and names and and language and whatnot. But this is all condition. Every religion is a condition. You know, so Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism is a convention, a condition. So this word, condition, convention, these words mean the same thing. It's conventional, what we call, Samut uh, Satcha, or conventional reality. There so is not something to to despise, but to recognize its limitation. It is, it's human-made human agreements on, on behavior, on religious belief, on uh, m- good manners, etiquette, uh, laws, and so forth, that that we all uh, agree, uh, what we, you know, if we're going to live together, we agree to do it like this. That is here at Amrabhati, and, and this, the uh, Sangha agrees to live like this, in this Theravada Thai forest tradition, Convention. Not saying it's better than any other, but it's just what we've agreed to. So this, this we're putting it in the proper context, so that you you understand how to use convention. Because if we if we don't understand that convention is very limited, and if attached to, and identified with, creates conflict. Because you know this is why. They say religion uh, cause more trouble. You know, they, they're the source of all the conflicts. Religious quarreling and religious hatreds and prejudices and biases. And this is, you know, the, you know sometimes it looks like that. We see the endless, endless harangues and, and quarrels and disagreements and accusations that, that go on between religious groups. So that's where, in the uh, uh, you know, the in the Buddhist practice is to put things in the right perspective, so that we can use the conventional world without being deluded by it, being liberated from it. Liberation from convention doesn't mean uh, getting rid of it; it just means understanding it. Because conventional reality is, is all about limitation. It can't be liberating in itself. It takes you so far. And, 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 it, and, it, and it can be used skillfully or unskillfully. How we use Buddhism, or Theravada Buddhism, or Dhamma Vinaya, or uh, Amravati, or whatever, can be used, you know, how we use it can be skillful or unskillful. That's up to the individual. now the point is not to just be skillful at using a convention but in awakening uh, to ultimate reality paramattha though in pali paramatta is like the ultimate truth what is that what is the ultimate truth and then of course in you know we you know is it some belief is it buddha is it uh, you know is it is it some kind of Force in the universe is it energy? Is it consciousness? Is it what is it? And we, we would like an answer, you know, some kind of of uh, word or concept for that, because we're used to we would like to solve solve the que- the problem, the question, have an answer to the question. But in Buddhist meditation, the aim is not to answer the question but to be the question, be that awakened attentiveness, rather than the grasping of even, you know, very erudite uh, answers, uh, traditional orthodox positions, views, and attitudes of any religion. Now it's very, you know, it seems very strange to many people, Buddhism, because what it does is it doesn't give you the answers to the questions. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose? Why Why was I born? It doesn't tell you the answer. But what it does is it points, it makes you look and awaken to start observing. The way it is that it is is not coming from a condition a grasping of conditions, so usually we're you know we we form views about how to meditate and and meditation techniques and and views about meditation practice and energy and and states uh concentrated states and so forth and So in Theravada Buddhism, we've we've got plethora of views and opinions about how to meditate, and what's the best way, or what is the true Buddhist practice, and on and on like that. So we can we can form strong views, uh, you know, according to how we interpret scripture or the various uh, how we regard the teachings that we hear, or find our own preferences, our own. Uh, you know, to justify our own particular viewpoint. We tend to incline towards those conditions or those conventions that support what we want to hear, or what we want to know. But in, uh, but the, in say, in uh, Vipassana meditation, what is generally referred to as Vipassana, insight meditation, what this really means is insight, looking into, observing, and this very ability that each one of us has is not coming from a position, of Buddhist position, or a Buddhist bias, or anything that we're, we're offering from, but it's the, the simple, imminent reality of awakened consciousness. Now that sounds simple enough, but awakened consciousness is something that that we're not used to. Is not an experience that we that most human beings uh, can really understand. Even though we you know we have that experience quite naturally, in our culture we're not we have no words for it. We don't know, you know we 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 form goals like attaining, like achieving, uh, purifying, becoming. Getting rid of sin or uh, bad habits or whatever, however you want to put it. So when we get stuck into that dualistic thinking pattern again, you see, we can't. We're stuck. We 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 we're kind of bound into this cycle of thinking. Now thinking itself is a convention, not to be despised, but. It, but as an attachment, if we're trying to figure it out and think and solve everything rationally and have answers to our questions and solutions to problems, through thinking, through analysis, through reason, <coughs> well, then we, you know we come up with, with things like, uh, "There isn't any God, atheism." We can we can form opinions about uh religious teachings, because we call them superstition maybe, because we we think they're all just rubbish because they're not they don't seem reasonable or fit our view of, of what is uh you know, logical or r- rational, which we're we're attached to that function of the of the intellect. So what is intuitive then is what we begin to start recognizing, and this is the whole essence of the Buddha's teaching. This is the ingredient sine qua non mindfulness, awareness, awakened consciousness. Now, each one of us is experiencing consciousness right now. We're conscious. Anyone here not conscious? Raise their hand. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> you sleep. <huh? laughs> so consciousness is and yet yet each one of us is have it lives in our own uh, perceptual realm. You know, I'm sitting here on this high seat, I am Ajan Samaitam, you are this person, this monk, this none, on and on like that. You know, the, the conventional, and uh, we've got it figured out conventionally. But consciousness isn't, isn't thinking. It's not thinking operates within consciousness. But, say, returning, beginning to recognize a natural state of awareness that we're born with. That we forget about and ignore and bypass because we get so conditioned. The older we get, the more conditioned we become. Like children aren't highly conditioned yet. Usually, they, you know, it takes a while to to get kind of set in your personality. You know, to children usually more. You know, they they don't they aren't so fixed yet. They're malleable, flexible minds. But when you get, you know, in your teens and into adult life, you're pretty well set into into identi- identities and habits and inclinations and uh, emotions that, that we've experienced and acquired during our life so far. Now they awakened. Like, like, say when I said I was twenty-one, so I was, you know, convinced. You know, I had the ego, the uh, pride, conceit, fears, desires, uh, anger, uh, jealousy, all the rest, all the rest of the human emotions, uh, feeling of dread and anxiety. Uh, uh, you know, and yet I had all these emotional habits fully kind of developed at the age of 21, I was educated, so I had a, you know, I had a, a good education, so I could think and I could make judgments, and, and I had developed critical faculties, you know, that some of my emotions were childish and some were uh, all right, and others were embarrassing, and others were, you know, there was all kinds of value judgments <clears throat> about emotions. Because, and from my background, we we're all kind of embarrassed about emotions because we like to think of ourselves as reasonable and rational. At least, you know, in my ego, my sense of my self worth depended very much on that I'm an intelligent, reasonable, rational man. And then so when, you, when you got turned on emotionally, you lost it. You were totally unreasonable not rational anymore, and then that seemed like, you know, something bad or frightening or threatening. Because emotions are, are, you know, they're scary. They're, at least, you know, from my experience, you don't know what to do with them. And, And by the time you're 21, you've learned how to act like an adult most of the time, at least in public. And so, you you know, I could put on an act and sound like a mature human being. Uh, you know, I was clever enough to develop uh, the facade of, of being a sensible, reasonable person. At least I, I assumed that I could. I'm not sure everybody that knew me then would agree with that. <laughs> but... Uh, Inwardly, you know, there still was so much fear, anxiety, uh, anger, frustration, rage. Now in, uh, when I came across Zen Buddhism, then what I said, that, that awakened me intuitively. Because then you know i I had some kind of feeling for that that beyond just the the you know it all made sense and it's so reasonable and and, and kind of religion it wasn't that i even under i think because i i was reading alan watts and d d Suzuki's books, so you know i was i was impressed i was fascinated but uh, intellectually it appealed to me, but it wasn't Intellect that really reached my heart, it was I would say it was one of those insightful or intuitive moments suddenly you you you, you know in a way that you can't figure out on the on your in, in your personal way of thinking now that was i say the beginning. Uh, something awakened me at the age of 21. Now to me that was, I couldn't explain it, I didn't understand what had happened, but something had shifted. And and I did have an interest, I had suddenly this overwhelming interest in Buddhism. So, you know, in those days, 55, uh, it was there wasn't much available that you could get in English on Buddhism you know, so you, you just, whatever you could find, you you got that and you kept it you know, and you treasured it. Now there's so many Buddhist books you know, you, you don't treasure them anymore you just figure out how you can get rid of them <laughs> So everybody writes books now. Uh, <coughs> so uh, in various languages, of course, English is, is so many in English, and that's not to to uh, disparage that, but um, recognize that, that 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 Buddhism is much more accessible now to to Western people, like here in Britain, much more, you know any. It's you know it's in the media. It's uh, monasteries like this are not that uncommon anymore, or meditation. Watkins and bookshops like that—they've plethora of Buddhist literature of every sort, every form, every sect, every tag on Buddhism. You get it on internet. So the the Buddhist conventions are very accessible now to everyone everywhere but no matter how much you've read it still doesn't you know all that reading can do is kind of inspire it you know it, it inspired it kind of led me on on one level but eventually you know you can read so much and then suddenly you want to do it you know you want to practice it you don't want to just acquire knowledge about buddhism and learn more about buddhism from literature or from courses in the university so this led me into becoming a monk and and, uh, and and which uh was you know because i happened to be living in southeast asia at the time the the opportunities for becoming a Theravadan monk were quite available, and that I met a very good teacher, Lung Po Cha. Now that was... Uh, now, it wasn't one thing that appealed to me about uh, Lung Po Cha's attitude was that it was investigative. You know, this is what he encouraged. He wasn't trying to convince me, convert me, uh, condition me program me into becoming some kind of buddhist monk you know quite willing to do that actually you know i i was quite willing to go along with everything um but i never got that was the that was the the purpose of becoming a monk was to just uh you know wear the robe and chant the Padimokha and learn Pali and, and uh, say all the right things about, you know, acquire a kind of Buddhist costume or a, a front of, you know, another another conventional form. Because his attitude was his awakeness. What what I felt living with, with Lung Phu Cha was that this, what he was always doing was kind of awakening me when I'd get lost in my views or fears and things like that. I always felt this sense of him, you know, of him being there and he was not on my back or, you know, spying on me or pursuing me in any way, but just, just this attitude of looking into, you know, what is suffering, what are the causes of it. Now the ignorant human consciousness always blames suffering on externals. You know, so, the, it's, I'm suffering because it's too hot, the weather is too hot. I'm suffering because uh, there's too many mosquitoes. I'm suffering, you know, I could find all causes, all kinds of external causes for suffering in, in uh, Ajahn Shah's monastery. But actually, you know, there, that wasn't what he was, he wasn't trying to justify or... Get me just to grin and bear it, but to investigate, you know, the way it is. So, more and more, I began to trust this awakenness, just observing how I created the suffering. Out of my ignorance, out of my habit, out of the ego, the sense of myself, my personality, my conditioning, I began to see how I had. Views, opinions, uh, fixations, fears, suspicions, frustrations—all uh, kinds of emotions would arise in in developing the monastic life in in uh, with Ajahn Chah. But the but the what was continually pointed to was awakeness, not to just uh, Try to get along and and go along and just surrender and kind of fit into everything uh, and, you know as I'm kind of by being rewarded or or punished if, if I didn't or rewarded if I did so then they then it begins to you begin to get some real insight. Because in this monastic convention, is, it, 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 make, it simplifies life, actually. You know, we've all agreed on how we're going to live together, celibacy, uh, le, you know, so our relationships with, with each other are celibate ones, and we have, you know, we're honest, and uh, we, you know, we have these kind of moral positions that we all agree to. And ways of relating to each other in terms of etiquette, good manners, and so forth—agreed ways of doing things—not to just make us into kind of autom- automatons of conformity, but to simplify everything. Because if you really develop with awareness, then you—you know—you you you know you, you do not have to. Spend your time energyly arguing about little things about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat, or things like this. you know you just you know you, you just you get these robes and shave your head and and you go along with with the conventional form based on dana, on alms mendicancy, and so that you know it realizes how simple one's life is in a monastery. i find living near Amravati, when i go in you know into into lay people's lives i think how complicated they are you know they're so complicated and and endless options and choices and and decisions have to be made on on you know just on so many ways that 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 i don't have to be bothered with you know so it it makes life simple so it gives me this uh, a kind of sense of of my 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 life as a way of practice of of developing this awareness because i don't have to spend it all the time making endless decisions and and uh, making money and having uh romantic relationships or doing anything like that but just you know, see, observing what, what uh, you know the the uh, life is I experience, how it, how I react to it, how I feel about it. So in uh, this, then over the years, this this confidence in this path increases, so that. By the time I came to England in one thousand, nine hundred and seventy-seven, I felt well, quite confident in in the, in the practice. I didn't have doubts about it, and and uh, have any great problems about how to practice. But then coming to live in a, in a European country and a different climate and different situation and something you know, there were all kinds of uncertainties that you know i could you know i could uh, become obsessed with you know how to survive how what to do and how to live as a buddhist monk within the within the the uh, british uh, society and of course mainly you know i've not found it difficult because you know, this is something that what, what the Buddha is pointing to in alms mendicancy and so forth, is, the, is pointing to the basic goodness of humanity. That m- m- human beings, it's quite natural to share, be generous. And, uh, you know, living here in Britain has not been an onerous experience. In terms of what is necessary, in terms of you can see how well supported a place like this is, you get these banquets almost every day this morning you know you you get a whole kind of buffet of delicious foods that everybody brings because they you know they not that we you know we're not even asking them to do it they this is what they do they the relationships and the 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 relationship to the sangha is one of generosity and 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 joy now i feel very much that this past year you know this sense of being blessed by everything this sense of blessings just seeming to to you know rain down upon me and this is, the more I trust in this awareness, in, in the mindfulness, and open to the universe, because it's not shutting anything out, you know, not trying to run away or, or control anything or avoid anything, but opening, totally kind of open, vulnerable to the whole universe in which one is receiving blessings. Now, what is that? You know that you can say God blesses me all the time. And then you say, no Buddhists don't believe in God. <laughs> but in terms of of the actual realities of life, you know, experiencing that within this form, this this human form. When I let go of uh, of all the conditions. Then, then this is what I experience: is this, this continuous flow of blessings. So, for this new year, say, this is this is my uh, termination. To to uh, you know really trust in this, to be uh, you know to open to the universe, not to try to find a a, a nice safe cave, uh, you know. Protect me from all the terrible predictions and the fears that that seem to permeate our society at this time. On a personal level, you know, you listen to the news or read literature, and it all sounds so dismal and so f- threatening uh, <clears throat> about pollution and and um, ch- climate change and and war and. And, and uh just uh, overpopulation. There's so many threatening, frightening perceptions and, and fear seems to this is I've never, you know, on one level seen so much fear in kind of as a kind of continuous doses of fear and anxiety that we get in this society. Because the future is, you know, 2007 right now is the future. And anything could happen in 2007. Anything you think of could be, you know, everybody gets enlightened, all five billion human beings. I'm not counting on that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just pointing to the extremes of of possibilities that one can create in the mind, or it's total destruction. Uh, uh, an asteroid crashes into planet Earth, and and everybody is uh, everything. The whole thing collapses in a heap of rubble. Possible. Those are the two extremes, you know, of of, uh, of thinking. Those are those are the thoughts. From the best to the worst. But what the Buddha is pointing at is not at conditioned phenomena, but at unconditioned. Now that get your mind around that word, unconditioned. What is that? And then we, you know, we try to think about the unconditioned. But more and more, this is what we really are. You know, when we are aware and awake and we're the receiving of this continuous flow of blessings it's the unconditioned reality so it's not something we we don't have or that we lack or we have to find it's just a matter of opening of recognizing of waking up and that is you know that's very very simple. It's not complicated. It's not impossible. But on a condition level, it might seem so. You know, well, I've got so many problems, and I'm, I've got all these problems, emotional problems and fears, and I, and uh, you know, I just need this, and I need that, and I can't stand this, and. Uh, and we, you know, and I can go around endlessly on a personal level. My personality is like that; it's conditioned out of ignorance. On a personal level, you know, my personality is basically the experience of ignorance. My, you know, how in my the sense of myself as a person. So I don't believe in it anymore. I don't trust. I don't trust my personal views, or my loves and hates, likes or dislikes. Because I, this awakening then is is impersonal, it's anatta. Now to recognize anatta, you know, is not to believe in that there's no self or no, you know, that personality is some kind of thing you've got to uh, get rid of. Because I still have a personality, still operates, but it's different relating to it, seeing it in terms of conventional realities and, and then trying to develop skill in, in society, in the Sangha life, in the country here, um, you know, using my conditions, these conditions for good and, and trying to use them so that they're a benefit to, to myself in the society rather than just, you know, using them to to uh, control things, or, you know, destroy, or protect my personal, the sense of my uh, emotional fears and desires. So this is, to me, you know, one of the great uh, benefits of of uh, the holy life, as we call it. Is it, you know, the more you, you develop that awareness and investigate. You know, it's not just to stay in a state of kind of I'm blessed forevermore kind of feeling. It's not, it might sound like that. But really, investigating suffering. If I'm suffering, it's because I'm attached to something, to a viewpoint. To pride, to fear, to my own sense of what's right, and uh, all that. So, you know, uh, you know, for I, on a personal level, I have a lot of pride. You know, the male pride. You know, you don't want to admit you're wrong or things like that. So you, you, uh, <coughs> you know, try to. Defend yourself, protect yourself. Also, I'm, you know, I'm a senior monk. I've got a reputation, a good reputation in the Buddhist world and so forth. And I'm important person, important bhikkhu. I'm mentioned in the Independent, where is God? Along with Archbishop of Canterbury and... Well, I mean that that can be you know that this could be an obstruction or not isn't it is how I how I want to regard this do I want to bind myself to being an important monk or to see that is is what's happened you know that's on a worldly level it is what it is but it's not something to believe in or to attach to or identify with because as soon as you're attached to being in a position, you know, being somebody, you're you're going to suffer, I guarantee it. Every time I do, I suffer. Every time I try to, you know, think of myself as special or advanced or important or... or the other, I think, of it, well, I'm just an ordinary bloke, you know, I'm trying to be... I you know, my pride also includes being humble. <laughs> I mean yeah, in Britain also it pays to be humble, isn't it? To go around saying I'm the best, you know. That's certainly a way to alienate all the English people. <clears throat> but if, you know, if you say, Well, I'm just an ordinary, you know, guy, really, and doing the best I can, that's still <laughs> That's still, that's still the self, isn't it, the ego? Or I'm hopeless, you know, I just can't Mm -hmm. meditate, can't, 40 years now, I haven't got anything. (laughs) That's not, that's still ego. So people ask me, what have you gotten for 40 years, you know, you've been a monk all these years, what What's the result? What did you get out of it? And they say, nothing. <laughs> now to the ordinary person, that might sound like, oh, it's ter- terrible, you know. You, you kind of expect to get something. You dedicate yourself to such a noble lifestyle for 40 years, you should have gotten something out of it. Well, I can, you know, I can concentrate my mind a little better than I used to. <laughs> and I'm certainly, you know, more kind of moral and careful than I was. I'm you know, I'm a little better, but still that's self view, isn't it? So this is where recognizing what self view is, you know, not not to believe any of it, even when it's good and sensible, even when it's humble and nice and so forth or when it's been horrible. Whatever sense of being somebody, being anything at all. So being nothing is not is not saying uh, you know, that it's the, that you don't you know, that nothing is, is just a kind of like a waste of one's life. But that's the point, letting go of everything. It's the total opposite of all worldly values. You gain nothing, but you let go of everything. And letting go of everything is non suffering. You know, and this is, don't believe me, this is I'm not asking you to believe this, but to, to uh, investigate this in your own lives. So, you, you know, this is something you have to find out for yourself. Now, it is subtle. So you know, the, recognizing how how important it is to to really uh, observe and notice just this movement of change, changing thoughts, how thoughts how they begin and end, or emotions arise and cease, and the the awareness of that, that sense of pure subjectivity observing the objects, because emotions are objects. You can you know what you're feeling. If you're feeling worried, you can be where I know when, when I start worrying. I feel worried today, and I don't feel very good, and I'm dreading this or whatever. There's a knowing now. That knowing is can you know? I tends to lead toward uh, taking it personally. There's some kind of personal identity, or impersonally, just recognizing. Be it, frightened or weary or tired or whatever's like this. And more and more you begin to not try to change or control anything, but feel this sense of confidence in the pure conscious awareness. Consciousness with awareness. And then then the then the everything comes together at that point. Uh, knowing, uh, a real a knowing not about anything, but it kind of what they call insight, intuitive wisdom operates from from this from this intu- intuition. So in uh, two thousand seven, they we begin our winter's retreat. Next week, and uh this is a wonderful opportunity here at Amaravati It's three months where you know the opportunities are there, you know for reflecting, observing, learning they are here all the time. It's not just winter retreats. But, you know, so don't think you know, that's the only time. You need a continuous retreat. That's another viewpoint. But this is this has come. This is by living here and staying at this place. This is what happens here. So, you know, it's not like you're trying to get it. It's just the way you know the part of the lifestyle that we have. So, then how to use this winter retreat, you know, see it as something to value and. And uh, to to be aware of what happens. You know, your own you know feelings of wanting to get something, or get rid of something, wanting to attain, wanting peace, wanting to get rid of, of negative mental states, and wanting to become a better monk, or better nun, or whatever. <laughs> See, through that, through that whole sense of me and mine, and wanting to become something, wanting to get rid of things and always trust in your awareness of it, that's all, Don't not a judgment about how you should think or feel, but whatever you're feeling, awareness of that, awareness of it, it is what it is, you know, it's, it's not trying to avoid, cover up, deny anything, run away from anything or suppress, but just honestly receive life as a flow, the changing conditions, one's calm as it happens, in, in, our, in, our, in the flow of our lives. So I offer this as a reflection. And then the at midnight, we will um, ring the bell and bring in the new year, 2007. And then after that will uh, be refreshments. I think, Uh, but whatever, (laughs) whatever is all right.